The Italian Radio Hour is sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano. Buonasera a tutti, good evening and welcome to the Italian Radio Hour. Io sono Viviana. We'd like to welcome back our regular listeners and also to, to welcome any new listeners and anyone listening online at khbradio.com. Also, be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour. E benvenuti ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo. Grazie per essere con noi anche oggi mentre continuiamo il nostro viaggio per l'Italia e la cultura italiana. Well, I don't know if any of our listeners noticed last week, but Viviana was not. <laughs> in the studio live. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we had a few little technical glitches because no, Viviana no. was somewhere else. Um, yes, I was actually traveling through Texas. It was my first time out there and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. And uh, uh, it's interesting to know that uh, there is um, actually the Italian community in Texas is uh, the six, um, sixth largest um, um, uh, ethnic group there, according to some uh, census uh, data and uh, pretty much like uh, Christopher Columbus himself Italians were often um, in the employ of the Spanish court as we also discussed later with our uh, guests uh, so there was that was a period of discovery and and travels and uh, so Italians came in large uh, numbers and specifically from um, Sicily and Naples um, so it's very interesting in Sicily they pinpoint three different um, uh, villages that people came from. One is Poggio Reale, the other one uh, Corleone, and then Saloparuta. And uh, so they came also later um, in the um, 1900s, uh, being miners and uh, uh, brick makers. And uh, they established themselves in great reputation um, as architects and, and sculptors. So, so we can see a lot of Italian style in the courthouses. Uh, we even had an Italian soldier that um, Uh, participated in the independence uh, battle, uh, indeed, uh, the battle of San um, Jacinto. <laughs> We can all say Jacinto, though that. Um, and uh, so it was, a, it was a very interesting trip. Great food, great people. Yes, absolutely. But no so. spaghetti. No spaghetti at all. <laughs> Lots of meat, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, on last week's episode, we spoke with Karima Moyernoki about the history of Italian food, not barbecue, uh, <laughs> from the fascist era to um, the era of the of La Dolce Vita, the 1960s. But before we get to our guest tonight, Viviana, let's find out the answer to last week's trivia question. What is the meaning of dalla padella alla So this is a, a, a an expression that we would use quite frequently when a situation gets from worse to worst. Uh, so because uh, from the frying pan you end up on the grill, so uh, it's definitely not an ideal situation. <laughs> No, definitely not. Well, anyway, so tonight our guest is uh, Danielle Oteri, who will discuss Bella Napoli, beautiful Naples. And she will also discuss the Neapolitan novels written by Elena Ferrante that have been adapted recently into the miniseries that uh, just uh, just finished the broadcast on HBO Indeed. on Monday. Mm-hmm. So. But before bringing Danielle on the show, a little publicità. Do you want to learn, improve, or master your Italian? Istituto Monte Italiano can help. 
Located in the heart of Regent Square, Mondo Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Okay, so we are so excited to have our guest, Daniel Oteri, who is a writer and art historian who worked in the, um, in the New York City's Metropolitan Museum of Art for 15 years and has also taught art history at Seton Hall, um, Seton Hall University. And she is the expert of Naples and the Cilento region. She will tell us all about this beautiful part of Italy. And it has also a tour company, Feast Travel, that hosts tours and creates custom itineraries in South Italy. And she has also developed a way of exploring Naples through, um, you know, through the eyes of uh, Elena Ferrante's uh, books, um, as you just said, um, have been uh, adapted into an HB miniseries. Um, you can also follow her um, and in the Tante Belle Cose uh, newsletter that is very, very interesting. And also, also, if you happen to be in New York, you might want to spend some time with Danielle to spend, uh, to learn more about Arthur Avenue, the real little Italy of New York. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Buonasera. Danielle, are you with us? Oh, we uh, seem to have lost a connection there. We <laughs> lost the connection. So, uh, Danielle, if you can, uh, if you can still hear us, okay, uh, plus, um, please call us again. Okay. So, um, Kathy, have you been to Naples yourself? Yes, actually, um, I spent a week in Naples this past October. Um, really enjoyed it. Just absolutely fell in love with the city. Um, a, a lot of American tourists don't tend to go to Naples. Americans tend to go to the the Holy Trinity, Rome, Florence, Venice, and Naples is rarely included on the itinerary. But... Um, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, it there's so much richness. Actually, it's one of my favorite cities in Italy. Um, it's hard to, um, it's hard to. Okay, let's see if we can try something a little unique here. But we're not going. Danielle, are you with us? I'm here. Okay, wonderful. We're going to try our best to bring you into the call through my cell phone. Okay, I hope our listeners can appreciate our efforts too. <laughs> Uh, so, Danielle, we just introduced you. We told our audience a little bit about what you do, not only in Naples, but also in, um, in uh, New York. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your growing up experience um, in, uh, in New York as an Italian-American? Sure, and uh, thank you for having me. So, I um, grew up in the New York suburbs. My family came from mostly Campania. I have one grandfather who is... Calabrese and uh, settled in the Arthur Avenue section of the Bronx on my father's side. My family owned a butcher shop that remains in business today in that neighborhood. But then I grew up a little bit outside the Bronx in the New York City suburbs where my grandparents' house just next door to ours was like stepping into my grandmother's hometown. Inside the house, we were in Capaccio. So I grew up with a classic Italian garden and somebody feeding me at all times. And so being Italian was an inextricable part of my childhood. 
It's interesting. Um, I've I, I read an interesting little fact um, about uh, about your your grandparents. Um, in 1918. They opened a bacala store in in the Bronx um, on Arthur Avenue, and um, I'm a huge movie buff. And one of my absolute favorite movies is the film Marty. It was made in 1954, starring uh, Ernest Borgnine. And in that movie, Ernest Borgnine, his his character Marty, plays a butcher, an Italian American butcher, and he works in a butcher shop owned by a Mr. O'Terry. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, this is uh, from my dad's side of the family. So the Bacala shop was opened originally by my great-grandparents, Albino and Grazia. And they kept it. It became a butcher shop after World War II when at that time Americans were eating meat. Before that, it wasn't a very common product that was available to people was just simply too expensive and at that point that point their sons took over so my grandfather and my uncle john and their younger brother uh all became butchers and at that time when marty was filmed in the shop and it was a very big deal because ernest borgnine was a real a-list celebrity uh to give you some perspective when he won the oscar that year for his role in Marty, he beat James Dean. So Arthur wow. Avenue was really, you know, an Italian enclave. It was a working class immigrant neighborhood, not on the radar of Hollywood. So when they decided to film this in an authentic Italian butcher shop on Arthur Avenue, it was a huge deal and a huge piece of recognition. And actually in the screenplay, Marty refers several times to his boss and it says Mr. Gazzara, but it was during the filming when my uncle John was actually showing Ernest Borgnine how to make sausage, uh, I guess, you know, just to give him some context for how to act as he was going through the scenes, he kind of took a liking to him. And it seems that he was the one who just changed his name, the store owner who was spoken of, but never actually seen to our last name to Mr. O'Terry. So several times throughout the film, he refers to his boss, Mr. O'Terry wanting to sell the shop. And that is definitely my uh, my last name's biggest claim to fame. <laughs> so, so Ernest Borgnine changed uh, pa- Patty Shayevsky's uh, script. Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, even more impressive is that Ernest Borgnine took a shine to my Uncle John because among my many relatives, he was not the one that was <laughs> the most, uh, he wasn't personality plus. He was, a, he was a tough guy. He definitely fit the personality of a butcher, but they got along famously. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing these details. Um, so uh, when did you get to Italy for the first time and how you probably grew up, you know, with um, uh, keeping certain traditions and expecting Italy to be the way that maybe you were raised? Uh, so um, how was it when you finally got to Italy? And was it during your studies, before, after? It was when I was 19 years old, and it was the first time I had been anywhere. I really had never been farther away from New York than New Jersey in my entire life. And uh, I went on a study abroad program for a summer to Florence. I absolutely fell in love with it. And then later, I returned to Florence for graduate school uh, to live for a year. And during that time, I went down to Naples. And then I said, oh, 
this is where I'm from. I mean, I loved Florence, but I never felt at home there. I felt very much an outsider and a foreigner. And then I went to Naples and I felt completely at home. And I looked around. I remember I was sitting on the train that goes out to Pompeii. And I'm just looking at these faces. I'm like, that's my Uncle Sonny. That's my dad. That's my grandmother. And, you know, and it, it has always been a natural fit. And, and, and I found the Italy that I grew up with, really. Mm-hmm. And also, I've always found that in the South in general, if you have Italian-American heritage, people are very quick to embrace you. That does not happen in Florence. Mm-hmm. And it is a different culture. I, I understand why, of course. But I, I often tell Italian-Americans, if you're going to Italy seeking something familiar, You've got to go to Naples or Sicily or Bari. You've got to go to the South. And also, um, you know, before you mentioned Florence and Renaissance, but you also fell in love and you are an expert in Renaissance, but focusing mainly on the South. Is that is that correct? It is, yeah. I had been studying the traditional Italian Renaissance that's centered in Florence. And on that trip to Naples, I also discovered the Castel Nuovo, also called the Maschio Angioino, and learned that there had been this extraordinary Renaissance in the South. But so many of the records from most of the records, really, from that time period had been destroyed during World War II. And what I came to understand was that what we know of the Italian Renaissance is shaped by the availability of primary source documents and shaped by where academics want to live and study. And Florence is an undeniably amazing place to to study and, you know, drink coffee and, you know, work in libraries. And there's always been traditionally a, a large expat community there, so it's a comfortable place to be. But I didn't realize that it was really about access and availability that glorifies the Renaissance in Florence and downplays or marginalizes the splendor of other Italian cities. Yeah, I think a lot of Americans especially don't understand the important role of Naples in pre-unification Italy prior to uh, 1861. Um, it, It really was really the, the most important part of Italy, wasn't it? The kingdom of the two Sicilies was a, a very powerful, very wealthy, and very influential place. I think, you know, one way we can access that is to think about all of the beautiful neoclassical buildings that are in the United States, post offices and courthouses. Well, that sort of uh, fever for classicism was really fed by the discovery of Pompeii, which happened in the kingdom of the two Sicilies. And Naples was an enlightenment city. I mean, you have the American Revolution in 1776, then you have the French Revolution in the 1790s. There's also a Neapolitan Revolution at the end of the 1700s. But these are all major hotbeds of of intellectual thought, um, political activity, and Naples was second really only to Paris pre-unification. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So then moving on to also the subject of today's conversation, we're going to focus on the two Naples, the one that uh, we can go and visit and appreciate as um, uh, as we speak today, and the one that is being portrayed in Elena Ferrante's um, 
my brilliant uh, friend. And uh, so um, you have developed also a tour, a way of exploring Naples through some landmarks and stories. But we're moving fast forward to the history. Where, um, and uh, tell us a little bit, if you don't mind uh, framing, um, where the book takes place, the historical period, the dynamics, uh, so that we can really appreciate the main characters. Although there are a lot of main characters. I mean, it's not just the two <laughs> girls. But I, I, we want you to do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this the, I wound up doing the first couple of uh, my brilliant friend tours in 2016 and 2017. And then at that time, there was a huge curiosity for people to really see these neighborhoods. Since the films have come about, there has been less desire for people to go on these tours because the films do an excellent job of capturing this world. But I was really amazed by how much people really needed to walk around and see it after reading it. The neighborhood that's portrayed at the beginning of the book is one we can identify as the Rione Luzzatti, which is the neighborhood directly behind the train station that you arrive in as a tourist. And post-war, it was a pretty new neighborhood. So it's not the sort of narrow laundry draped lanes of you know what would be the Spanish Quarter, for example. This was a brand new neighborhood built primarily for railway workers, almost like public housing. And what's also very interesting about that world was that these characters, you'll notice that there are no grandparents in the stories, mm -hmm. which is very unusual very for very an Italian story. Yeah. Because this, yeah. these were people who had moved to the cities for work. So just as people had emigrated abroad, they had also left those little small towns and villages uh, around Mount Vesuvius and around the countryside uh, to live in the city. And so they were living a modern life, but they were also living life in post-war Naples, which had seen incredible destruction. And so we can imagine all those adults who seem so cold and mean and ferocious at times were also very traumatized people. And so that, that world that's created grows. And I think what we really see throughout the four novels that we refer to generally as the Neapolitan novels is modern Italy developing. We go from the post-war period to the 50s to the politically active 70s. And in the fourth book, we um, see even the Irpinia earthquake. So mm -hmm. it's a fascinating chart of modern Italy seen from a southern Italian perspective. And uh, so uh, you mentioned also Mount Vesuvius. And, uh, yeah, I have an interesting question. You know, um, I was, uh, we were talking earlier, I, I just spent a week in, in uh, Naples last fall, and the one thing that really impressed me was Mount Vesuvius that looms over the city. How has this affected the mentality of the Neapolitans? Oh, it's very much the eat, drink, and be merry because that volcano could glow, blow over <laughs> at any moment. It is absolutely a part of the city. And it's also, I, I read this really beautiful reflection on it in an Italian newspaper, maybe in like November or December, saying that Naples is also open to the sea. So while you have this volcano there, the escape is through, it would be through the sea. And so people also in Naples have to remain very open because it's the place where they would both leave and have sent many of their residents abroad to the United States and elsewhere. And it's also where people come into the city is through the sea. So you have these two dynamics of the sea and the volcano that very much shape the characters of the people of Naples. And I think it's absolutely accurate. 
um, there is a there is a uh, trip to the seaside uh, in uh, in uh, in the book when the, the girls go to 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 the beach. Can you elaborate on that and what that trip really meant? Because I think one of the girls tried to get the other one in trouble so that you she would get punished and not go to a high school. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, it's such a pivotal scene. It's you know it's it's literal and it's metaphorical. There's this tunnel that connects the neighborhood where the girls live and the sea, which is really a, a road that leads down to a highway where you can drive along the seafront. And yes, they're at a point where they can continue on with their education, but they can only do so with the permission of their parents. And Lenu is going to get to go to school and Leela is not going to get to go. And it seems though Leela comes up with the idea perhaps to get Lenu in trouble so that maybe also she won't get to continue on with her education. But it's such a beautiful scene because as the two girls walk through this tunnel and they're doing so in secret, their parents don't know what they're doing. Lenu, who is afraid to do so at first, realizes that the farther away she gets from the neighborhood, the more liberated she feels. And Leela, who instigated the journey, realizes that she's terrified and she feels like she's losing control and losing her power. And it's also a commentary on poverty because these girls live in a port city and yet they've never left their tiny little neighborhood, which is probably less than a mile away from the sea. And it really goes on to define their trajectory through the rest of the books. Manu is the one who goes away and succeeds and Leela always stays in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. She actually wants to come back once she has to leave the neighborhood. She, as on, you know, her identity is linked to the neighborhood. It's something that she cannot escape. So she needs to go back to her neighbor, uh, neighborhood. And uh, but also in the scene, of, uh, you know, in the, in the tunnel, even though, you know, maybe the intention was trying to get Lenu in trouble so that, that she wouldn't go to school and so forth. She is actually Lena. Lena is the one pull, that pulls back. She she realizes that. Uh, so there are a lot of dynamics in these two, in the relationship of this girl. It's like a lot of, obviously, uh, pushing buttons, going to the extreme, but it's so deep. And um, um, have you lived or wish you had lived a friendship like that I mean a lot of uh, you know it's one of those books where people just wanted to have read a little more because it, they just couldn't you know put it down um, what was for you when you first came across um, these novels and I'm sorry if I add another comment but the the covers were not really reflecting the nature of the book and there have been some comments on the on the covers of the, of the books yeah, the, the covers were terrible. <laughs> I'll just say they're awful. But yeah, I, you know, it was a, I, I didn't discover them early on. I sort of came late. I think I discovered the books maybe when the third one had already been published. And I was reading the first one. I was sitting on the subway in New York City, and I'm, it was actually kind of slow going at first. And it was a man who came over to me, and he leaned over, and he said, I know the first book is kind of slow, but get through it because once you get to the second book, you're going to need to cancel the rest of your life. You're not going to be able to stop reading. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. So I kind of pressed through the beginning. You know, at first it's so heavy because there's so many names and you're losing track and everything's kind of heavy and depressing. But yeah, after he was right, I just sped through the rest of them. Um, when the fourth one came out, I think I just breathed it in. <laughs> I was so excited to read it all. And I've been fairly obsessed ever since. I've read them multiple times. I read the first one in Italian and discovered actually that there was there was a lot that was lost in translation, some really important details as well. 
And they continue to be fascinating. Now with the films, there just continues to be more and more to discuss. They're such masterpieces, truly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, um, let's uh, let's hold your thought about the translation. Uh, We just have a teeny tiny commercial break and then we'll start from there again. Okay. Applying for dual citizenship? Need documents translated? Istituto Mondo Italiano provides certified translation and interpretation services in 20 different languages. Be sure to visit us at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Okay, we are back because we can't we can't stop having this conversation with Dania. So you uh, you had the the ability and the pleasure to enjoy the books both in, in Italian and uh, in in English. I only uh, read them in Italian. So um, how did it work with the translation of switching between Neapolitan and in Italian in the English version? And maybe I could ask you also, Kathy, because maybe you read them in I, English. I read them in English. Yes. Was that transferred or somehow marked so that the reader could see or was uh, could be aware that there was a switch of languages? Well, in the same as in the Italian version, she just refers to say, say you know, Lila said in dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you just get the sense that, you know, it's just a, a more vulgar form or a more colloquial form of their regular speech. But there is there is one key detail, if you've only read it in Italian, that like maybe you didn't notice. I know my friends who read it only in Italian didn't realize that this detail didn't didn't translate into English, which was Don Achille's black bag. Oh, yes. I, I heard your talks, so I know where you're going. And please share that with our audience. Well, in the stories, Don Achille, who is the the bad guy, he is the ogre of fables, as they say, uh, is described as this fearsome guy who goes around the neighborhood with his black bag um, and he stuffs children in it and he steals things. And what this is, is a childish misunderstanding of the term la borsa nera, nera, the black bag, which in Italian refers to the black market. So that is lost in the translation. I suppose the only way you could translate it would be to put an asterisk and explain in, in a sub mm-hmm. in the subtext that you know borsa nera means black market in Italy. But we as the English readers are also accepting that childish misunderstanding of what's really going on. It's not a literal black bag. And so I think what a lot of English speaking readers miss is that this is also a mafia story. Mm-hmm. It's very much a mafia story and i you know those romantic covers and the idea that this is a a a series of books for women i think kind of misses the mark that the mafia the camorra is a huge piece of all four books Mm -hmm. um so um yeah, if, if you had the ability to to find out who Elena Ferrante was and, and actually had the opportunity to, to ask her a question, what would you ask her? Would there be one question that you would say, hey, you know, what, what did you mean by this? Well, I mean, I think we, everybody has a pretty good idea of, of who Elena Ferrante is. I don't know if we want to spoil this for your listeners, but in Italy, people even refer to Elena Ferrante by a different pronoun because of the assumption of, of who <laughs> um, they are. And, you know, I think the, the question I would always would have, I don't know, it would be hard to say. I, I, what I sense about Elena Ferrante that I would like to discuss, maybe I don't have a specific question, but is that love-hate relationship with Naples, which a lot of Neapolitans have. 
and this these books definitely have that tension where Lenu is you know trying to get away but she's inexplicable she's always drawn back to the neighborhood one way or the other and I would like to know more about Elena Ferrante's own relationship with Naples mm-hmm. you talk about this love-hate relationship that people have with Naples and I think um, uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, American tourists tend not to visit Naples they're sort of afraid of Naples and 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 because it's such a complex city I always describe it as a city that there's in in which there's beauty in in the chaos and it's a city of of many many different layers can you talk about the layers of Naples physically also physically (laughs) and metaphorically it is one of the the tours I always tell people to take when they first arrive the first thing you do to understand Naples is a tour called the Naples Underground and there are several different versions of it but the one I like the best starts with bringing you all the way down below the city to a set of Greek cisterns, and you go down via a staircase. And that is the first layer of the city, the Greek colony, and you're walking around in a world from 3,000 years ago. And then the next layer up, you're walking around in a Roman amphitheater or a Roman market, if you take the tour that starts right across the street. And then you come up to ground level, and you see all of the palaces that were built in the Middle Ages and then later in the Renaissance and the Baroque. And you understand that they've just continuously been building the city within the ancient Greek walls. And, you know, I guess, you know, living in the age of another plague, we can understand that people did this as a means of protecting themselves, as having city walls to protect from disease and from invaders. And that is how the city has been designed. Now, the city, especially its more wealthy districts, have spread out from that historic center. Um, there's some very wealthy, fancy, beautiful neighborhoods of Naples. The Vomito, which is sort of atop the historic center, and the Chiaia, which extends along the shoreline up to Posilipo. But that core of Naples really defines the city. Now, it's interesting also that the underground city, um, those that system of, of cisterns and caves underneath the city was used actually uh, quite recently uh, during World War II, right? That's when a lot of them were really sort of kind of excavated. I'm saying that with air quotes because people always knew they were there. And I think a lot of people in their homes kind of use those underground spaces as wine cellars. <laughs> uh, but uh there's also a famous story of a, of a there's a, a convent and a monastery that are right next to each other, and there was always a miracle there where the nuns became <laughs> pregnant, and then they found out that there was a tunnel that connected them directly underneath. Uh, so people always knew about that underground, but yeah, people used them as bomb shelters because there was continuous carpet bombing for about over a year, maybe almost two years in Naples, actually by the Allies. They were bombing residential neighborhoods to try to get the Neapolitans to rise up against the occupying Germans. <laughs> and so people hid there. And when I see these images of people in Ukraine hiding in the subway, um, or I saw an image on the cover of the New York Times this week of a nun um, trying to comfort people who were hiding in an underground shelter. I said, this is exactly what happened in Naples. <laughs> um, so talking about some of the historical events, um, can you share with the audience why Naples, what happened in Naples during certain days that made it so so important and so unique? There's the major event that's referred to as the Four Days of Naples, which happened in October of 1943, when after months and months of continuous bombing, um, and then this is really sort of the, 
the beginning of the end for the Germans, the Allies land on the beaches at Pestum, which is usually referred to as Salerno, but province of Salerno actually came in at Pestum. So at this point, the population is at their wits end, and there's sort of a spontaneous uprising in the various quarters of Naples, mostly women and children and the elderly, and rise up and expel and really free the city from German occupation. Now, World War II buffs get very upset about this because they say, well, the Germans were distracted, they were fighting here, they were fighting there. But Neapolitans will tell you with a lot of pride that we are the only city in Italy that we freed ourselves. We didn't wait for anybody, we freed ourselves. And that's also a defining element of the Neapolitan character that I really love. And so when the Allies arrived, they found a desperate and starving populace, but the Germans were gone. However, as the Germans were retreating, they strategically dropped bombs on the port. Actually, the order that came directly from Hitler was to level Naples, was to completely destroy it and leave nothing there. So it's really, um, the four days of Naples is a miracle that saved the city. But they bombed the state archives, which at that time was the largest repository of medieval and Renaissance documents in Europe. So that very rich medieval history of the Angevins and the Aragonese and the Gothic cathedrals that were in Naples, all of those primary source documents were destroyed with one bomb. And that must affect also your research studies, because uh, uh, a lot of the information that you would have maybe relied on uh, was um, had already been destroyed. Exactly. And that's why we don't know as much about this Renaissance. What survives is actually a large part of it is in France because of the Angevin kingdom and a large part of it is in Spain. Uh, so if you are going to research this period, you're going to have to learn Catalan, <laughs> which is, you know, not necessarily the most useful language to devote yourself to. So it's, it's definitely a challenge. Whereas unlike in Florence, you know, Michelangelo's tax records are still sitting in an archive that you can sort through. And <laughs> one of the many reasons that people continue to study a lot of the same figures and historical moments over and over again is that there's just like a lot of stuff to go through. And in Naples, a lot of it was destroyed. So you have to use other methods. And there, there are, there is much more study and attention paid to it now, um, begun by Neapolitan scholars. Now other Italian scholars have focused their energies there. And now much of that information is, is finding its way into the English-speaking world. <laughs> um, the, some of the historical events in Naples and the birth dates of the girls, do they have any connections? They do. Uh, Lenou's birthday is the date that corresponds with the liberation of Paris. And Lila's birthday corresponds with the liberation of Florence. I may have transposed those in my mind, but I believe that's accurate. <laughs> So it's interesting you, you talked about um, about the uh, uh, having to go to to Spain and France to to learn history of uh, of Naples. Um, when I was recently in Italy, uh, we visited the uh, castle in Caserta, which um, I believe is bigger than Versailles, is that right? Can you talk a little bit about the history of, of Regia di Caserta? It is the largest palace in the world. It is twice the size of Versailles. It's of that same time period, so if you're familiar with you know, Marie Antoinette, the, the palace at Versailles, it, it's a very similar architectural style. 
uh, it was just one of the palaces of the Bourbon dynasty. They had their main castle right on the port in Naples, which is right next to the Opera House, and another amazing thing to visit as a tourist. But they needed to build another castle that was away from the sea. Also, when they built yet another castle, the Palace of Portici, they accidentally discovered Herculaneum. <laughs> so that wasn't able to be as big as they wanted to because of that tremendous discovery. So Caserta is more inland and it was designed at first by an architect named Luigi Van Vitelli and then continued to expand for generations after that. But it's an incredibly impressive place, very well kept. It's when you go to Caserta, that's really when you grasp how important and how wealthy the kingdom of the two Sicilies was. And it's a shame that it's not a bigger tourist site. I mean, it's as fascinating as going to visit the Vatican Museum, but there are very few non-Italian tourists there. Every time I go, I, I feel like I'm there with like maybe an Italian high school or elementary school, some German tourists. It's pretty easy to get to from Naples too. You can just take a train. It drops you directly in front of the palace. But definitely bring your comfortable shoes because exploring the world's largest palace definitely involves a lot of walking. Well, luckily they do have that little shuttle bus that takes you from the palace <laughs> to the, the garden, gardens. through the gardens. <laughs> and having little bikes that you could rent too if you want to ride around in the English gardens in the back. Um, that is, uh, it is indeed a fantastic site. I had uh, the uh, the pleasure to to visit it, and uh, it just you, uh, you know you you come out with so much beauty in your in your eyes, and those gardens are so manicured, and it just it, it is indeed a site. I will indeed post uh, some pictures um, uh, later with the uh, with the interview. Any other destinations that either you take your visitors to or you. Um, considered not to be missed uh, for oh. people exploring uh, the area. Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? There's so many things and so, <laughs> so many places that are just not so busy. I mean, Pompeii is packed with tourists, but there are also many other sites. Um, people don't necessarily realize that when Pompeii was destroyed by an eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, it really took out the whole coast. And so there are many other archaeological sites. Pompeii is just one of them that you can visit. Uh, my recent fascination is the city of Baia, the, which was an ancient Roman resort. It was like the Las Vegas of the Roman world. Mm -hmm. It's in an area just a little bit east of Naples. It's really like a, maybe a 30, 40-minute drive out of the center of Naples in an area called the Campi Flegrei. Mm -hmm. And it's most of the old Roman resort, which was incredibly famous. This is where the plot against Julius Caesar was hatched. Most of it is underwater because of a phenomenon called Brady Sizem, which is a slow-motion earthquake where the ruins sank beneath the water. However, if you are a snorkeler or you scuba dive, you can visit the ruins that way, or you can book a tour on a glass-bottomed boat, which is amazing. I mean, it's such a great way. I mean, you're out on the water uh, and getting to see history and archaeology at the same time. And then the rest of Baia is above land, and you can explore it. There's a it's called the Temple of Mercury. It was actually part of a bath complex. It was the cold room with an oculus that is 100 years older than the Pantheon. So you could wait online for three hours to go inside the Pantheon in Rome. And of course, that's an amazing experience. 
Or you could go to Baia and be the only person there. And I think the entry Not after is this like... conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not after yeah. this conversation. Well, it's, it's not, not as easy it's... to get to. Mm-hmm. The signage is terrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the challenge, like, throughout southern Italy, I think, is just... I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing. There's not a, a large infrastructure that's been designed by the cruise lines and the major hotel chains. And those are the ones that often create the English language information. Because Southern Italy, I think, is still dominated by family businesses and other parts of Italy as well, where family businesses reign, certainly many parts of Northern Italy as well. They're considered off the beaten path. But they're really not. There's so much to see and you know to be able to be in these places without having to wait online pay a fortune and be surrounded by crowds of people is a fantastic experience another interesting place that i I think a lot of americans have never heard about is pestum Uh, you mentioned earlier that's where the landing occurred but what is pestum really famous for pestum is famous for these massive Greek temples that are actually the most well-preserved Greek temples in the world. They're in South Italy. And these are especially dear to me because my grandmother, whose home I grew up next door to, um, she is from Capaccio Pestum, which is a combined township. And she would tell me stories about how when she was a little girl, her and her sisters would sit on the temple grounds at Pestum and they would pull little pieces of ceramics out of the ground this is greek pottery and they would put them together as puzzle pieces and it's you know a much more well-organized archaeological site now at that time it was just sort of exposed and the ground is very marshy and there was a lot of malaria there so a good deed that Mussolini left behind was he actually drained the swamps around pestum and that created the opportunity for the archaeological park to be brought to light. So these three Greek temples are massive. There's also the remains of, of a Roman city that were that was built right on top of the temple grounds, and there's a lot of archaeology that's going on there. There's whole sections of the city yet to be excavated. And underneath all of the very famous buffalo mozzarella farms of this area, there are definitely many, many more ruins from the ancient city of Pestum to be discovered. Yeah, when I was there several years ago, I was just amazed that there were hardly any tourists there. Um, and you could just walk amongst the, the temples and, and compared get, to Greece, this yeah. is a thousand and times better. And catching a sunset, so that, uh, that's when you get those most amazing pictures. Oh, it's yeah. really oh, yeah. with all the shades, and then you can get some gelato. My picture has the big gelato. Oh, I don't have that. <laughs> they also have a great archaeological <laughs> there called Bar Museo. Uh-huh. A, a friend of mine who grew up there, she said that before gelato was like a thing that, you know, people, there was best gelato lists and that sort of thing. Italian families used to drive from all over Italy to go see Pestum and then have gelato at this one place. Yes, it's, it's an, a combo, an experience that you have, you have to have, even because the whole experience of enjoying gelato differently a little bit from the U.S., it is about strolling and taking in the environment. Um, yeah. I just don't go and buy gelato or ice cream from, you know, the supermarket. I've, not, I've been here in the U.S. 25 years. I've never bought it. But when I go to Italy, 
as soon as I land in there, you know, after my cappuccino and uh, uh, cornetto, it's just uh, walking downtown with my sister and have a gelato. It's part of the, the, the experience of taking all in. You mentioned the mozzarella corridor uh, from Battipaglia on. It is, uh, it is a, a, an amazing experience to really uh, taste the mozzarella di bufala straight from the factories and... Um, I actually had uh, the, the the pleasure to visit also the the, the labs that analyze um, these uh, uh, mozzarella that are coming out because um, um, obviously not only do they serve the Italian territory, but they, it's a huge, um, widely exported product. And I think Japan was their number one customer, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yes. So now we're talking about foods in Naples. Uh, some other things that people should uh, try in uh, like some sweet pastries, different kinds. Yeah, oh, what what so what, what is Naples <laughs> most famous for? Baba, spogliatella, spogliatella. Yeah. <laughs> of course, pizza is the birthplace of pizza. You can't have a... I mean, Neapolitans, of course, have their favorites, and I've, I've tried some places that Neapolitans have said are the best, and they are transcendent. However, I will say, by our standards, you can get a piece of pizza in Naples or, or a whole pizza that's in the, the most touristy area of the city, like right off of the dock where the cruise lines drop you off. And it's still a pretty good pizza. Absolutely. And uh, so from this foliatelli, there are two different kinds, the riccia and the liscia. Can you describe them and maybe um, the difference between the two of them? Yeah, we're more in the United States. If you're familiar with foliatelli, we usually only have the, the riccia, the flaky pastry kind. Um, the, and those are my personal favorite. And that's really an artifact of the French influence in Naples in the 1700s. Uh, Maria Carolina, who was the queen of Naples, her sister was Marie Antoinette, and there was a lot of French influence in Naples. And then the frola, the smooth kinds, um, is more almost like a it's like a thicker pastry, like a oh, what am I thinking? Like a pasta frola, I guess, mm-hmm. more like what you would have on the outside of a crostata. Yeah, I don't. I never see those in the U.S. I'm kind of loyal to the riccia. That's what I always pick. <laughs> Where's the best place to get a spogliatella if I go to if I go to Naples? Your favorite. Yeah, where's your My favorite, favorite place? My favorite is in the um, Galleria Umberto. Mm-hmm. There's a place called La Spogliatella Mary, and there's a rivalry because across the street on the Via Toledo, there's a place called Pintauro, and that boasts that it's the very first pastry shop to, that they invented the spogliatella. So, especially on Sunday afternoons in Naples, you'll see people lining up at either Mary. Or Pintauro. Mm-hmm. And I have tried both in the spirit of good research. <laughs> and I and I like Mary a little bit more. Um, so if it is Christmas time and you want to adorn your Christmas tree, where would you go? You go to the street of uh, San Gregorio Armeno, which is a narrow street in the historic center with those Greek cisterns and Roman markets directly below your feet. And actually, that monastery and that convent that had the, uh, the fantastic pregnant nuns is on that same street as well. But the street is lined with artisans that make the presepio figures, the figures that go inside the Neapolitan Christmas crush. And, you, of course, you have Mary and Jesus and Joseph. But then you have all of the other characters of Neapolitan life. You'll have the tailor and the ricotta maker and the shoemaker. And they're... 
they're so much fun. And, and some of them are very inexpensive and sort of mass produced. And then there are others that are beautiful artisan products. Uh, it's, it's interesting the things that uh, Italians will put in their Prosepe. It's not just Mary <laughs> Jesus, Joseph. The shepherds, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. like it's like Maradona and yeah, the Pope. Maradona, <laughs> Maradona yeah, Maradona. Um, there is Maradona. the yes, it's, there is the whole culture, the Maradona uh, culture there has, and every year, based on who is in charge in the political scene all over the world, you might see new statuettes popping left and right. <laughs> so, oh yes, well, my favorite on that same street too. There's this one guy that always has. He makes little magnets. And they are garbage bags, like little black garbage bags. And then he'll put a picture of the face of whoever he doesn't, you know, who's ever not popular in that moment. So I've seen everybody on there from Donald Trump to Angela Merkel. <laughs> it's just, it's such a Neapolitan, uh, you know, thing. It's just like this person, no, you're garbage. Let's put this on a magnet and make it funny and cute and put it up for sale. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So um, while we talked about pizza, we talked about sfogliatelle, and then obviously we have to touch about coffee, caffè. And uh, um, again, also, um, often here when you're served coffee, you know, they'll give you a glass of water. And people usually drink the coffee first and then the glass of water. Not in Naples. You got to have the water <laughs> first. You got to rinse your mouth so that you can really appreciate the... Uh, the aroma. Have you uh, seen signs for the Café Sospeso? Have you heard about this uh, this tradition um, there? Yes, it began at the Café Gambrinus, which is a great spot to visit also as a tourist because it's right in the, across the street from the San Carlo, San Carlo Opera House and the Royal Palace, a beautiful old 19th century cafe and the tradition there of putting a little money aside, basically buying two coffees, one to enjoy and one for somebody else to to enjoy into a bucket so that somebody's homeless or can't afford it can come in and have a cup of coffee. And it acknowledges the basic humanity of somebody that anybody anybody should and can enjoy a cup of coffee if they need one. And the Cafe Gambrinos is just an absolutely gorgeous um, structure. It's a, a place to, to enjoy coffee, like a, the grand old coffee houses in Vienna. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful spot and the waiters are in tuxedos and the service is very old world. It's a beautiful place. So if our listeners, and I'm sure they will, are interested in um, following what you, uh, what you do, what you write about, or um, enjoy your, uh, your services, um, your trip planning services, how can they contact you? My website is feasttravel.com, and there we have all of our services, our group tours. We have a blog. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. That's at Feast on History. And I also write a newsletter about Italy. I try to have it go out every week. It doesn't always happen. But it's called Tante Belle Cose, which means many beautiful things. And you can subscribe to that um, by going to daniellooterry.substack.com. Okay, Danielle, this has been a wonderful conversation. Tante Belle Cose a te. (laughs) No pun intended. And hopefully we'll cross paths either here in New York or somewhere in Naples or in Italy. Thank you so very much. Buona serata. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Well, unfortunately, the hour is almost up.
e il nostro Big Bang ha detto stop. And it's time for us to say arrivederci e alla prossima. We want to thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us at the Italian Radio Hour at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And Viviana, before we leave, who will be our guest next week? Well, next uh, next week, our guest will be Michelle Damiani. She's the author of Il Bel Centro, a book chronicling her family's year-long experience living in Spello, one of the most beautiful bergs, uno dei borghi più belli d'Italia, in Umbria. And um, she's also the writer of a series of novels that take place in a imaginary town in Umbria, much like her beloved Spello. And also, I want to uh, remind our listeners that um, we are uh, putting together a cookbook inspired by your recipes. If you have a traditional and or regional Italian family recipe that you would like to have included in the cookbook, please submit it to us at our email address, theitalianradiohour at gmail.com. We hope to have the cookbook available around Mother's Day, so please don't wait to send us your recipes. Uh, remember, if you or any of your family and friends have missed a prior episode or would like to listen to this episode again, please visit our website at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org and click on the Italian Radio Hour Vorremmo ringraziare la nostra ospite Danielle Oteri, il nostro sponsor Istituto Mondo Italiano e alla Buora per la Musica. And finally, before we leave, here is our language trivia for next week. What does girare la frittata mean? Again, what does girare la frittata mean? You can send, it, you can send us your answers at theitalianradiohour at gmail.com. And remember, if you are not in the Pittsburgh area or you might be traveling, you can catch us streaming live at khbradio.com every Thursday at 5 p.m. And be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour. Until next time, alla prossima. Ciao, ciao.
The Italian Radio Hour has been sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano.